You're listening to Venture Vignettes, a podcast that features learnings from trailblazers in entrepreneurship and investment. I'm your host, Rihanna Shah, and today on the show, we have Christoph Shepard, co-founder of Campfire. Thanks for tuning in. So maybe to start out, uh, could you tell us a little bit about Campfire and, and what inspired you to start it? Uh, so Campfire was born earlier this year uh, from a concept that my co-founder Nick and I came up with last year. And Campfire is a mobile application currently available for iOS in the App Store, coming to Android soon. It's an application that allows users to ask awesome questions Mm -hmm. to people they wouldn't otherwise get to talk to. So, for example, I might want to ask a question to my favorite celebrity or to an expert or to a change maker who lives on the other side of the world from me, but whose activities and activism really inspires me. And the really exciting thing about Campfire is that when I receive an audio response to my question and other people listen to that audio response, I get paid. Hmm. So, for example, Rihanna, if I'm a huge fan of yours, I could ask you a question, mm-hmm. you'd respond to me with an audio message, and when my friends listen in to that conversation that's mm-hmm. going on between you and I, I get paid actual real money, dollars. Ah, how cool. The nicest part of it, though, is that the money that I make can be donated to my favorite charity, if I so choose. So we like to say that social media on Campfire does social good. Oh, I love it. That sounds awesome. And um, why did you want to start Campfire? Well, I think it was a confluence of different factors. Nick Mm -hmm. and I had just graduated from school, so you Mm -hmm. know we had the option, should we go down the career track and go and work for a large investment bank or something, or should we go and try and start something of our own? And I think we both felt that definite pull towards starting something of our own. Before you know, school, I was already an entrepreneur. I'd done a few different things, mostly in aviation and airlines in different parts of the world. Interesting. And Nick had also uh, started a business of his own in mm-hmm. North Korea, of all places. Hmm. So we had that entrepreneurial spirit in us already, I think, and it just made yeah, sense definitely. when we came up with the concept that we should that we should really run with it. Yeah, sounds awesome. So what were some of the things that you had to figure out in Campfire's lifetime, and, and how did you go about learning those things? Uh, Well, first of all, we're still very much learning, and that sounds like such a cliche. But every single day, I learn new things from new people that I meet who are revealing to me problems I'd never even thought of when we first came up with the concept, or even things I hadn't thought about yesterday. So it's a constant learning experience. But in terms of kind of how we got started and and, and the things I had to learn, I think the most important thing that faces any entrepreneur is Mm -hmm. like, how are you going to fund it? Yeah, for sure. So for a lot of businesses, you know, you can fund your startup through your own income. For example, if I have Mm -hmm. like a side hustle because, you know, Mm -hmm. I I make jewelry, for example, as as one of my best friends does, or, uh, you know, I have my own um, bespoke makeup range, for example, another one of my Mm -hmm. friends does that, uh, they at least have the opportunity to fund those side hustles out of their, you know, the the income they make from their full-time jobs. Yeah, but definitely. in the case of Campfire, like we needed a lot of money to mm-hmm. hire other people, mm-hmm. to put together marketing materials, um, to develop the actual application itself that was going to go into the App Store. We mm-hmm. needed money to do all of those things. And so the real struggle at first was to make sure that we could raise some investment capital. I think that's probably the main thing. Yeah, definitely. I've heard that can be a, <laughs> a long, difficult process. It can but... be. It can be, yes. Yeah, that's fantastic. What were, in, in terms of figuring out your actual mobile application, so of course it's pretty different to 
do a company that's based on a on a technology that relies on people's cell phones, what were some of the things that you had to learn on the technical side of things or on the development side of things, and how did you figure out what your application was going to look like? I take very much a backseat on the technical side of things, as mm-hmm. does Nick. We hired in the expertise nice. that we needed, and we were very fortunate to find mm-hmm. trustworthy, mm-hmm. able, confident, and, and also kind of like affable mm-hmm. people who are nice to work with yeah, to, awesome. to, to head up our um, technical and engineering mm-hmm. effort. I feel very comfortable, I just don't know if my team would agree, but I feel very <laughs> comfortable in delegating responsibility for things that I don't myself understand particularly mm-hmm. well to others. Uh, yeah. I think that's one of the most important things, that skills that you can have as a startup founder. Yeah, you can't definitely. control everything, you can't run everything, and you mm-hmm. can't know everything. So delegating um, responsibilities mm-hmm. to other people is important. It's actually a skill that I learned very early on. I mentioned before that I started other businesses in aviation. Mm-hmm. I actually started an airline once upon a time in Greece. I was only 21 years old, I think, when the first you plane You don't hear off. that every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you don't, not necessarily. Um, but I didn't know anything. I knew nothing about airlines. I was a history major. Yeah, college so didn't teach you how to start an airline? College did not teach Darn. me how to start an airline. <laughs> Um, and I showed up, I, this airline was in Greece, I showed up mm-hmm. in Greece, didn't at the time speak any Greek, had at the time very <laughs> limited, if any, understanding of how an airline works. And in order to get the whole thing off the ground, I had to hire and then rely mm-hmm. on people who were wiser, in many cases older, and mm-hmm. in all cases smarter than me. You know, And so I think that experience of starting that airline in Greece really helps um, yeah, when definitely. you're starting a tech business, you realize you've got to do the same thing. You've got to rely on other people to fill in the, the, the in my case, very capacious gaps yeah, in your definitely. knowledge. I've heard that one of the hardest things to do with a startup is to figure out who you want to hire or figure out who the right people are you want to hire because it's such a it's such a big investment. And since salaries are usually one of the top of the line when it comes to when it comes to actual payments or, or how your startup is bleeding money. Yes. I'm wondering what were some of the things that you did to make sure that you were hiring the right talent in the seats that you wanted? Yes, absolutely. On that point, I mean, I don't think this is too commercially sensitive, but certainly a majority of our mm-hmm. cash burn is mm-hmm. salaries. Like you've got to yeah. pay money to people to work for you. And that's usually your biggest overhead as a startup is paying people to come and join you. Having said that, you you need to find the right people who are basically, they see the long-term vision of the company that you are setting up. Yeah, definitely. And so they're prepared to take that short-term hit to their pay. Mm -hmm. Because I, as well as everybody else working Mm -hmm. with Campfire, could go and make more money, Mm -hmm. you know, in a proper, I say proper, like a more established, (laughs) you know, a more established company. But I think we all see mm-hmm. the um, you know the vision for Campfire, and therefore we're, we're prepared to take a little bit of a cut to our immediate pay for that longer term upside. In terms of how do you find such people, that is a very very difficult question indeed. Mm-hmm. Nick and I were very very fortunate in that we're graduates of Stanford University, yep. and as a result, that gave us access to some brilliant brains and some mm-hmm. brilliant minds. You know, in general, I would say that finding good people, particularly when you're starting out. depends as much on or more on who you know than who you can find so speak to your friends Mm -hmm. talk to old classmates speak to people who maybe are senior to you in the company that you work for at the moment or Mm. professors from your old university people you know with years of experience who can make recommendations yeah Um, that's 
really the way that I uh, would go if I was, you know, if I was going to start up Campfire all over again. And we, we, of course, we have hiring needs all the time. And while I would love to say, like, yes, you know, we're accepting applications on Twitter or, or on, <laughs> online or whatever, the reality is that, you know, if you are presented with a candidate mm-hmm. who's come through a referral, yep. you're much more likely to take and to trust in their ability to do the job that you need them to do. Yeah, definitely. So what were some of the things that you looked for in your very early hires? Because I assume at that point, you're not necessarily looking for one person to do one single specific small job, but that you're really looking for folks who are going to jump on the train with you and just sort of go wherever the road leads. Yeah, you got it in one. I mean, that's exactly what you're looking for. You're looking for somebody. I mean, imagine you're taking a long journey in a very small, (laughs) half-broken car. (laughs) that could crash at any time yeah. in the middle of the desert or wherever it is you're driving That's through. That's a great analogy. <laughs> who would you want to drive with? I know who I would want to drive with. I, mm-hmm. First of all, I'd want to drive with a mechanic because mm-hmm. this car is likely to break down along the way, so I want somebody yeah. who's going to be able to fix the car en route. Mm-hmm. But I also, you know, I also want people that I want to share this adventure with, that mm-hmm. I want to share this car ride with. Um, all too often it's easy to choose one of those two things over the other. In other words, to choose a mechanic I hate or to choose yeah. somebody I love but somebody who doesn't know how to fix a car. Yeah. It's very important that you have both of those two things. Hmm. And then, and only then, should you really start considering how expensive is this person going to be to yeah. hire. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that's really important to to remember as folks sort of end up making, um, making HR choices. Because a lot of times people will sort of work with their friends because they already enjoy it, but they might not necessarily always evaluate people yes. on their own skill sets and on their own sort of strengths and weaknesses. Yes. That said, what were some of the things that you took into account when you were trying to build out a team culture? And what were some of the things that you were thinking about as you sort of brought that team together? That's a really good question. So good, in fact, that I'm almost inclined to tell you to ask me on Campfire. Um, (laughs) But I will give you a little bit of a teaser. Um, How to build a company culture? That's it. It's a good question because it's impossible to answer. I think I had the benefit of having previously started a company before. Mm-hmm. I have also worked in large companies that have great cultures. Uh, mm-hmm. Before coming to Stanford, I worked at JetBlue in New mm-hmm. York. It has a terrific all-hands-on-deck work culture. And being at Stanford itself, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Stanford Business School in particular teaches mm-hmm. you ways to build like great team culture. There are so many factors that go into it that, you know, I don't think I could summarize it really very adequately, but I would say one thing, which is to keep in mind that when you're dealing with other people, be they, you know, your spouse, your children, your parents, or Mm -hmm. your employees, what people really care about is the feeling of being heard, of being heard and being Mm -hmm. understood. And the number of times you come across people in life who, you know, are sort of angry or frustrated or throwing mm-hmm. a tantrum. I work often with Hollywood people nowadays because we're, we're bringing sort of Hollywood celebrities onto the campfire platform. Yeah, the number of times awesome. I deal with people who mm-hmm. are just, you know, they, they, they're adults. They behave almost like they're children. But really, <laughs> what they're looking for is somebody to just say, listen, my God, you're having a really shit day. What can I do to make your day a little bit better? And, and you see it in their faces. Like, that just takes yeah. the, the wind out of their sails. They're like, okay. This is what you can do. And it's very easy to diffuse situations like that. I think cultures which promote this value of of hearing what other people have to say and understanding what other people have to say, listening Mm -hmm. to their voices, is what really matters. I actually heard, I was speaking to one of Campfire's advisors this morning, and she kind of echoed some of these. We were having a conversation about this, in fact, and she was echoing some of the things that I've just said. And she said, um, oh, treat others as you would want to be treated yourself. Mm -hmm. 
But actually, the real mm -hmm. thing that you should be doing is just treat others as they want to be treated. Hmm. Simple as that. I like that. It's cool that um, you're talking about hearing being such an such a big part of company culture at Campfire. I mean, you <laughs> I literally yeah, built a company true. around uh, people hearing other people's answers. So that is that's that, awesome. <laughs> that is so true. My God, I'm 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 drinking my own Kool Aid, and I'm not even <laughs> not even aware of it. It's terrifying. <laughs> Have, have stories played an important role in your life? Like, what has what has the role been of stories in your life? Has it oh, been something that gosh. you've thought about? Uh, not really. I'm I'm a, I think I'm a terrible storyteller. Actually, I'm really not good at telling <laughs> stories. But I do love hearing other people's stories. Hmm. I think a well told story is both artistic and scientific. I mean, if you look hmm. at some of the best comedians. Um, for instance, the way a joke can be related through a story mm -hmm. and the way that story is is literally um, staggered or, or staged mm -hmm. in such a way as to, you know, to reveal punchlines bit by bit. Or, mm -hmm. It's just stories can be magical and, and truly wonderful things. And, you know, I, I cannot by any means claim to be a good storyteller, but I've always I've always had an ear for and, a, and an appreciation for yeah. um, a good story, I think. That's fair. So it's uh, is it safe to say that you don't necessarily use a lot of storytelling in your own work or in the work that you do, or, or do you think a lot about storytelling? I think my you know my co-founder Nick is is unlike me is a very good storyteller, hmm. and you know he I would say he could like sell ice to Eskimos. The reason why he can do it <laughs> is because he can take anything mm -hmm. and build a story around it, tell a tale, and get you to be interested in finding out what the conclusion of the story is going to be. I think, to be honest, people who can tell stories mm -hmm. are very often among the most successful entrepreneurs that we have. Mm. When I think about Steve Jobs, for example, I mean, the mm. guy, sure, I mean, I actually don't know that much about his technical uh, background and talent. I'm, I'm sure he was really good at designing things. But really what he was good at was telling stories, telling stories to customers, mm. telling stories to investors, yep. telling stories to the public markets. Mm -hmm. That's what he was good at doing. Likewise, when I think of, I don't know, people like... Richard Branson, the founder of Virgin, is a British entrepreneur, somebody mm -hmm. I looked up to when I was growing up in the UK. Um, very often, his businesses are... Uh, uh, I don't, I'm, I'm going to be polite about it, because, I mean, he's built a, a vast empire, but his businesses <laughs> are often more style than substance. Hmm. Um, they're often kind of like cardboard facades, and there's not very much behind them. And yet, Richard Branson is a is such a master storyteller that he's mm -hmm. managed to build this phenomenal global brand yep. uh, out of some really slick marketing, some slick storytelling, and some slick PR. And it's very impressive. It's extremely impressive how he's managed to do that. Yeah, that that is an interesting point. Um, to switch gears a little bit, I'd love to hear about what have been some of the biggest hurdles in building in building your business, and and what are things that you have done to overcome them. Well, I mean, you know, to all aspiring entrepreneurs, I would say fundraising is always the scariest thing because mm -hmm. you've got to walk into a room and persuade mm -hmm. usually a total stranger to write you a check, to actually take money out of their pocket and give it to you, which <laughs> is really hard. <laughs> it's a really hard thing to do. I would say Nick and I were very, very fortunate in finding our investors. We, mm -hmm. we were able to secure investment in a very, very short space of time. Mm -hmm. uh, and we did it. I think Nick actually was the driving force behind it. He did it really through telling a story, spinning a yarn, mm -hmm. and he did it very successfully. One thing that I would encourage all entrepreneurs, wherever they are in the world, mm -hmm. to consider is sourcing investment from China. Hmm. And I know a lot of people have said, ah, so our investors are Chinese. A lot of people... Um, 
you know, are aware that China is like a vast growing superpower, like, my mm-hmm. God, they're going to take over the world and stuff. Like, until you actually deal with them and realize how much money they have and how quickly they can move hmm. if they like an idea or a concept, you would just be you'd just be astonished. Like it's huh, it's, it's it is like nothing I have ever experienced in the Western world before. And I've hmm. I've worked in you know in the US, throughout Europe, across Africa, like mm-hmm. in India. I have never been to a place where people have so much money and prepared to put their money where their mouths are in hmm. such a short space of time. So that's the first thing I would say about fundraising. Like, think global. That's if, interesting. If you and can. It's, it's funny that you say that since mm. you're based out of Silicon Valley or, or were based out of Silicon Valley. Yeah, too. yeah, that is true. That is true. <laughs> I think, well, I think Silicon Valley is a bit of a closed, it's sad, actually. I don't think mm. that Silicon Valley is a globally minded place. It's, mm-hmm. it's actually horrifying. I was uh, in LA um, like, this week and. I saw a billboard for an... Uh, I've forgotten the name of the company, but from what I could tell, this was an app that allowed dog owners to locate the nearest poo point for their dogs <laughs> on the street. So, like, you're walking down the street, you pull out your phone, like, oh, where's the nearest place where Fido can do a poo? <laughs> First of all, I mean, there's so many problems with this with this app. I mean, in fact, I'm not even going to go into the problems with this app because I think you can identify what they are. But much more importantly, it's it's... Who needs this product? Mm-hmm. Like this is such a niche product that like, is not solving anybody's problems. Really, there's not really a problem to be solved. And I think Silicon Valley is is so far up its own fundament so often that it's solving problems for other, to be honest, middle-aged, bespectacled, balding white guys <laughs> who happen to live in Silicon Valley. And very little thought is being given to, you know landslides in Sierra Leone or water crises in Mm -hmm. India well actually I say in India let alone Flint, Michigan is is right on our doorstep and and what is Silicon Valley doing to solve problems like those I I feel very very passionately um, about the responsibility that people in Silicon Valley who are extremely well educated and usually Mm -hmm. very well financed and come from comfortable backgrounds the responsibility that they have that we have to use our um, resources to to, to benefit Mm -hmm. the world beyond uh, you know, the Palo Alto zip code or the San Francisco zip code. Don't sell me another... I mean, I know we have an app, so... Campfire is great, by the way, guys. Download it today from the App Store. Not um, another app. But, but don't give me another app that's, like, telling me where I, where my dog can poo. It's just... That's not necessary. It's yeah, just not that's, required. That's totally fair. In what way do you feel like Silicon Valley is a, is a closed door? And how does that compare to China's investment infrastructure? In Silicon Valley, it's definitely more about who you know mm-hmm. than it is in China. I think China is, is more of a Wild West kind of frontier. Like, mm. if you've got a great idea and a good team, like, we'll run with it. Whereas Silicon Valley, I think, you know, you've got to know people. You've got to sm- mm-hmm. schmooze your way in the door. And even when you do, be prepared to be patronized mm-hmm. and lectured to about your own business in the process. Because everybody in, in Silicon Valley, at least in venture capital, meaning the investment, side of things has a vested interest Mm -hmm. in making themselves out to be more clever than they really are that's Mm -hmm. how they keep their jobs it's like oh my god I know more Um, than you about investment and and the way the products work so I I have a bit of a bitter taste in my mouth about Silicon Valley as you can probably tell Hmm. I also don't think I mean I'm a man so of course you know like I'm not affected by by some of the gender biases that, Mm -hmm. that exist in Silicon Valley at least not directly 
nobody in Silicon Valley is racist. Nobody in Silicon Valley is sexist. White middle-aged people tend to hang out with other white middle-aged mm-hmm. people. And so when it comes to getting references for job hires, they get those references from other white middle-aged people. So those references are for white younger-aged people. And so there's this, there's this accidental but nevertheless self-perpetuating bubble of, of cultural and ethnic and gender homogeneity in, in Silicon Valley, which I think needs serious, serious addressing. It's not really so much that venture capitalists are choosing not to invest in mm-hmm. ethnic-driven businesses. It's mm-hmm. more that ethnic-driven businesses don't even get in the door to be yeah. considered in the first place. Yeah. And uh, that is something that I think we all have a responsibility to address. I'm very proud of the diversity of, of our team at mm-hmm. Campfire. I think, you know, it means that we get lots of different perspectives and lots yep. of different ideas. Um, you know, I very often get mm. challenged by, you know, I'm like, you're supposed to just nod and say yes. I pay your wages. <laughs> like, just say yes. But I, I no, I'm kidding, of course. Um, you know, I think it's very important when you have, when you, as you start growing your team at least, yep. you know, of course, when you have only one or two people, how diverse can your team be? But yep. as you start getting to six, seven, eight, nine, ten people, like, mm-hmm. have women, like, have black faces, have Asian faces, you know. Yeah. have a British voice. It, it, it always helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's interesting. What are some of the, um, what are some of the things that Silicon Valley can do to address these racial and gender disparities that exist? It's a great question. Um, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of it could be done by venture capitalists and by incubators going out into communities mm-hmm. across the U S and globally, mm-hmm. and maybe setting up internships or, or, or scholarships or programs mm-hmm. that would, you know, would, would bring people physically mm-hmm. to Silicon Valley where they could learn some of the tricks of the trade and maybe then either stay in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. or, you know, or go back to wherever it was that they came from mm-hmm. uh, and replicate some of Silicon Valley's um, best practices elsewhere in the world. So I think there are, there are definitely um, VCs out there and they know who they are if they're listening. Um, there are definitely VCs <laughs> out there who have the wherewithal. Mm-hmm. They have the money. I mean, there's no... They, these VCs can afford to send a partner to Lagos, Nigeria, mm-hmm. host a you know a panel or some kind of in-person demonstration, and then sponsor one lucky candidate, pay for their tickets, and you know get them to come and live in Silicon Valley for three yeah. or six months or something and learn mm-hmm. the tricks of the trade. Like, I wonder why why they don't do it. Yeah, that's fair. Thank you so much for for being on the show. This was awesome. Thank you, Rihanna. It was a real pleasure uh, to be here. And if I may add a plug. It's get.campfire.fm. Awesome. Thanks Thank so you. much. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on LinkedIn at Brianna Shaw. That is R-I-A-N-A, last name S-H-A-H. Thank you and see you next week.